This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon, and welcome to this Policy Circle conference call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. Today, we'll be discussing the future of the Iran nuclear deal. Joining me today are Dalia Dasa Kay, Director of the Rand Center for Middle East Public Policy, and Ali Nader a senior international policy analyst at RAND. Dahlia, let me start with you, a bit of a, a scene setter. President Trump said two weeks ago that he would not certify that Iran is complying with an agreement on curtailing its nuclear program, and that has opened a 60-day window for Congress to perhaps reimpose sanctions. Where do we stand on the decertification question? What's Congress up to? What does it mean? Yeah, thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank you for everyone on the call. Where we stand right now is the decertification decision that the president announced uh, October 13th, and it's in the context, I think it's important to remember, of a broader strategy to confront uh, issues of concern to the administration, to U.S. policy of what Iran is doing in the region. But essentially, what it does is it punts the Iran issue to Congress, as you said, for 60 days. The decertification decision itself does not violate the nuclear agreement. It is an international agreement, a multilateral agreement, uh, not just a U.S. agreement. But what the concern is and why the future of the deal is so uncertain now is that if Congress reimposes sanctions, which is not likely to do automatically, but there are uh, current pieces of legislation being uh, negotiated. There's one right now by uh, Senator Corker and Cotton. And there are elements in those pieces of legislation that could be read as violating the deal if there are nuclear-related sanctions reimposed. Uh, It's fine if Congress imposes non-nuclear sanctions, and those happen all the time. There were just some passed the other day in the House. But if there's anything that imposes nuclear-related sanctions, that would make the U.S. in violation of this international arms control agreement. And that's something our European friends and others are very worried about. So that's where things stand, kind of waiting for what happens in Congress. Uh, But I think it's also important to note that even if Congress does nothing, uh, the president has another go at this, because in January, he could unilaterally uh, take withdraw the United States from the agreement, because he has to to continue to waive sanctions every 90 days, so that the U.S. is not punishing European firms investing in Iran. He has waived sanctions to date, but he could make the decision in January not to waive sanctions if he doesn't like what he's seen in Congress. So the bottom line is the decertification set in a chain of events in motion that leads to a lot of uncertainty about whether this deal can survive. You mentioned uh, uncertainty. Is that the only immediate consequence of the decertification movement? I think the primary concern here is the future of this very important arms control agreement, which the ultimate aim is to ensure that Iran does not become a nuclear weapons state, which is a critical U.S. and global national interest. I think that the the consequences are are much broader. I think the the most important consequence is uh, the friction this is creating with our European partners. But even beyond there, uh, Russia and China are also in agreement. Really, the United States is isolated on this question because what we 
faces a situation where the international agency, the IAEA, the international agency in charge of enforcing and uh, inspecting uh, Iran and making sure this agreement moves forward, has certified Iranian compliance. And in fact, even key U.S. leaders, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and others, our Defense Secretary, uh, believe that Iran has been in compliance with this arms control agreement. So um, the concern is that it's not just about the future of this arms control agreement. There's also concern that it's also isolating the United States globally and raising credibility about the U.S. willingness to stay in international agreements. And some folks are concerned even that it may affect uh, our ability to negotiate with North Korea because there's the perception now that the U.S. can't be taken at its word when it comes to international agreements. And and then just finally, I would say there's also concern about broader regional escalation that this could trigger, given the close proximity of U.S. and Iranian forces in Syria, Iraq, and beyond. So there's a spillover effect of this decision that's even uh, greater than the very important issue of maintaining this nonproliferation agreement. Ali, what do you think? Has Dahlia covered all of the potential ramifications here so far? Uh, I think the most important ones, uh, I want to say, too, that the U.S. negotiated the agreement in good faith, and no other members of uh, the P5 plus one, the U.S. Security Council plus Germany, that signed the agreement in addition to Iran, believe that this agreement is against global security. The Trump administration, I think, is arguing that it's not in U.S. national interest, whereas the international community is very united, uh, with a few exceptions, like Israel, Saudi Arabia, to some extent. The international community is very united on this agreement, and no single party can unilaterally change the agreement. So no matter how many sanctions Congress passes on the nuclear issue or Iran's policies in general, the agreement cannot be renegotiated unless all members of the P5 plus one and Iran agree for the JCPOA to be renegotiated. So the U.S. basically stands in isolation when it comes to this issue. If Congress does pass new sanctions on the nuclear agreement, the mechanism for assessing compliance within the JCPOA could fault the United States, technically, for undermining the agreement. When the agreement was signed, the expectation in a lot of quarters was that Iran would violate the agreement, but now we're looking at potentially the United States violating the agreement if it passes sanctions on the nuclear issue. On non-nuclear issues, again, sanctions may not technically be against the JCPOA, but already in Iran, they're judged, judged as uh, the United States uh, cheating on the agreement. That's the white perception within Iran among not just the elite, but the population as well. Is this causing the Europeans or those in the Middle East to address America in a different manner? Dali, you seem to suggest that this is already causing some potential loss of trust. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that is one of the main concerns. I think Ali made a good point, and, and you know, what what's clear is that it, it can't be a negotiation between the U.S. Congress and the U.S. administration. This is an international arms control agreement. Um, so there's a lot of frustration in Europe and around, the, and around the world about the politics happening in Washington right now. Why is this happening at this moment? All of those things that the administration is concerned about on the non-nuclear realm, support for terrorism, ballistic missiles, those are things that actually, especially our European friends, are also concerned about. And their argument is, and you even hear this 
from some Israelis, interestingly, that we would have been in a better position to work on add-on agreements on ballistic missiles, even on issues related to the agreement itself, on sunset clauses, etc. We would have had more leverage to deal with these issues had we vigorously enforced this agreement and stay in it. Now, um, and that's what they're still hoping will be the case, that this situation in Congress will not ultimately undermine the deal. But there's a lot of question marks now. And so that's what's created a lot of frustration in Europe and around the globe is why are we doing this? It undermines our leverage. As Ali said, unfortunately, it puts the onus on us instead of Iran. Iran should be the one. If this, if this deal falls apart, it should be the Iranians' fault, not the Americans' fault. So I think that's really key. Ali, do you want to weigh in? The Europeans, including the European Union and also the United Kingdom, France and Germany, have said that it is essential for the JCPOA to be enforced. And they've indicated pretty strongly that they're going to pursue their own economic policies when it comes to Iran. Now, a U.S. imposition of sanctions is going to make foreign investment in Iran really difficult because the international financial system is very dependent on the United States. European banks and companies have been very cautious in terms of investing in Iran. They've been waiting for a while to see what happens regarding the Trump administration's policy on Iran. But also there's been discussion among Europeans that they will find means to protect their companies from U.S. sanctions. And there's a history of that. European countries and companies have often disagreed with the U.S. sanctions approach toward Iran. So already we have a number of foreign banks and companies who are going into Iran and investing in Iran despite the Trump administration's decertification. Some companies are going to be very hesitant to do business in Iran, but there have been others that have said they're not changing their strategy, including uh, major French companies like Total, which is investing heavily in Iran's energy sector. And interestingly, the French president and the French government have acted pretty assertively on this issue. And the French president has even said, Macron, that he is open to visiting Iran. So right now, all is not entirely clear what the situation will be like, because the Trump administration has sent very mixed messages on this issue, uh, especially to the Europeans. But uh, for now, I think there is a divide between Europe and the United States on JCPOA. Maybe just a step back for a moment. The, the critics of this plan from the start have felt that it did not uh, achieve the key aim of preventing uh, Iran from uh, becoming a nuclear state. Is that what is at the heart of the political maneuvering now to try to blow up the deal, try to get a new deal? And, and if so, do you think that that could help in some way as opposed to just delaying when the Iranians are going to become nuclear? Yeah, I think, Jeff, what's so interesting uh, about that is that you even see critics of the initial agreement on both sides of the aisle, in fact, in, in Washington, who really didn't like the original nuclear deal. And you see this in some Israeli quarters as well. But they say, let's let this play out, because meanwhile, it is putting this issue on the back burner. And let's focus on the weaknesses of the deal as they see it, especially some of the provisions that start to phase out at year eight, year 10, year 15, especially. Let's focus on that later when it gets closer. Let's get as many years as we can of this deal, enforce it 
multilaterally and not have the U.S. be the one pulling the plug. They don't like the ramifications of this for the United States uh, regionally and internationally in terms of the isolation that it puts us in, uh, because that makes it even harder to get the kind of international support you need to pressure Iran to make the concessions, because ultimately you need the Iranians to, Iranians to agree to these concessions. You can't just no- negotiate this in Washington. And there was a lot of attempts to strengthen certain elements of the deal. This notion you'd be getting a better deal, I think, is, is um, uh, I think a lot of people are uh, skeptical of. The Europeans have certainly signaled, as Ali suggested, that they are not going to renegotiate elements of the deal itself. There is the potential for add-on agreements, uh, but again, that's on the assumption that the U.S. is still in the deal and enforcing it. If the U.S. pulls out and undermines this agreement, the Iranians ultimately are in this for economic sanctions. So that they kind of, the, we get the worst of all worlds. They get off the hook, most likely will have fewer restraints on their nuclear program, which is bad for everyone. And there'll be fewer multilateral mechanisms and support uh, for reining them in because ultimately they won't be blamed. So this is a concern. And that's why even critics of the original agreement were opposed to this decertification, the way in which the administration is pursuing this. Not to mention the fact that the other ways to confront Iran on the non-nuclear areas can all move forward without undermining the deal itself. You can build on the deal and then focus on all the areas of concern actors around the world have, and you would have more consensus for that. So I think that's, that's why a lot of folks are mystified about why this approach uh, to uh, confronting Iran. Ali, are the Iranians mystified by this approach? What's, what's the view from Tehran? No, I don't think Iran is mystified, and I don't think a lot of other people are mystified either, because you asked why the, there has been so much criticism of the deal, and there are several reasons. I think, one, there are people who are truly skeptical that it's a good agreement, because ultimately Iran is able to enrich uranium. That doesn't mean it could ever gain nuclear weapons, but it has still a significant nuclear program. But the JCPOA, by putting Iran under a very strict international monitoring, prevents Iran from weaponizing its program. And that's a very important distinction. I think there are those who think Iran shouldn't have any sort of nuclear capabilities, which is uh, very unrealistic because before the JCPOA was signed, Iran had a very advanced nuclear uh, program and Iran has scaled it back quite a bit. And the International Atomic Energy Agency, along with every other country, including the United States previously, before the decertification, judged Iran to be in compliance. Even the United States has officially said Iran is in compliance with the nuclear agreement. So in terms of it being a good agreement, there's some disagreement, but very not very convincing as to why this is a bad agreement. And, you know, the, the debate on that is hours long. I don't think we can get to it just, uh, you know, in the next uh, several minutes. But I also want to say uh, this agreement is also wrapped up in U.S. politics. It's uh, viewed as a major achievement by the Obama administration, especially by the agreement supporters. And uh, the Trump administration has shown that it wants to unravel a lot of Obama's programs. So I don't think we can forget the the politics of it in the United States. And even the latest sanctions uh, against Iran, I think, are to some extent, quite politically motivated because each country that has signed this agreement has its own domestic politics. And in Iran, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who was always very skeptical of the agreement uh, from the very beginning of the negotiations, argued that 
he did not believe the United States would stick to the agreement, that the United States could not be trusted. Whereas Iran's president, uh, Hassan Rouhani, his main argument was that Iran had to give negotiations a chance and that he would deliver on the nuclear issue and help open up the Iranian economy and improve uh, daily living standards for the average Iranian. And I hear anecdotally anyhow, but if you even look at uh, the major debates in Iran among the elite, a lot of Iranians are maybe mystified is the right word, uh, at least very disappointed that the United States is not sticking to this agreement. Ultimately, if the U.S. walks away from this agreement, it just confirms uh, Khamenei's claim that the United States cannot be trusted. So it would have actually major ramifications in Iran, and it already is having uh, major ramifications because I think uh, the U.S. is losing credibility among the Iranian public, not just for policies on JCPOA, but banning Iranians from coming to the United States. Uh, in Trump's speech, he called the Persian Gulf Arabian Gulf. Uh, that has uh, major ramifications in Iran, and it has a rally around uh, rally around the flag effect. That because Iranians, although they may uh, disapprove of their system of government, uh, can say at least Iran's government was ultimately right on this issue. You said that there might be some disappointment of the U.S possibly walking away from the deal. Are either of you suggesting that the U.S. really will walk away from this deal? I think there's a good chance, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my assessment is this, uh, the decertification uh, decision was kind of uh, framed as a compromise, as a way for the president to check his box, because it, I, I agree, it's no surprise. We know he didn't like this deal and that this, and, and, and there was no surprise the administration would be more confrontational toward Iran. Well, I think people were surprised that the president had certified this agreement twice. He continues to waive sanctions. So people really did think, both here, many people here and in, in Europe and other places, maybe not in Iran, that that the U.S. wouldn't touch the deal itself. But I think the idea is this was framed as, well, decertification could check that box but not get the U.S. out of the deal. But as I was suggesting before, it opens up a chain of events and so much uncertainty that will be difficult to control and to put back in a box that I think there's a lot of uh, question marks about whether this deal can survive. I think that, you know, it, it may be a case where it will become a life support situation uh, where European allies try to keep this thing afloat and hope the Iranians will find enough sanctions relief that they will continue to comply with the restrictions on their program. I don't think we're going to get a better agreement internationally that's agreed to. What we may see is just a weakening of the current agreement. That might be the best scenario. The worst scenario is that it completely unravels, and we're back to where we were before this agreement started, which is Iran having a civilian nuclear program that is capable of weaponizing in too quick of a time period uh, for the U U.S. and our allies to accept. And so we'll get back into this debate about do we accept an Iranian bomb or do we bomb Iran? And that's not a good place to be. And that's what this deal was trying to prevent. I agree with Dolly. I think that's uh, really accurate. But also the things the U.S. Are, is doing right now can be viewed as undermining the agreement. For example, the Trump administration, uh, inclu including Secretary 
Secretary Tillerson and General McMaster, the National Security Advisor, have said that foreign companies should be very careful about doing business with uh, Revolutionary Guards in Iran. And the Revolutionary Guards are really responsible for Iran's foreign policy, especially in the Middle East. Uh, they're very active in Iraq, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Yemen, even. And uh, the U.S. wants to discourage the Revolutionary Guards from benefiting, but uh, the Revolutionary Guard is quite involved in Iran's economy. So by sanctioning the Revolutionary Guard, that can be viewed as a de facto sanction against the nuclear program. Uh, because one clause of the new the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, states that none of the parties are allowed to discourage investments in Iran. And the United States has been just discouraging investments in Iran. When the agreement was signed, the Obama administration didn't quite actively encourage investment in Iran. Secretary John Kerry did a few times talk to European banks and encourage investment. But now, current U.S. administration is actively discouraging companies from investing in Iran. And while that may not be technically a violation of the agreement, uh, you can argue in theory it is. And the Trump administration has also been arguing that Iran is violating the agreement and spared because of its foreign policy. So portions of the agreement are really open to interpretation. So that's where I think international opinion really matters. What would happen if the participants in the agreement did determine that the U.S. was violating that part of the agreement. What happens? Well, there's a commission made up of all the participants, the two five plus one, that uh, makes those decisions. I always looked at if, what would happen to Iran if it violated the agreement. So there would be snapback sanctions against Iran. I'm not exactly sure what would happen to the United States, actually. That's a really good question. I think the, the main consequence if, if the U.S. is considered in violation is the Iranians basically are off the hook, right? I, I, you know, I think the Iranians want this agreement to go forward for the economic benefits. Uh, but if the U.S. is out, the only way that it can survive, survive is if they continue to get that economic relief they like. But unfortunately, it gets them off the hook um, and they may push the limit of their nuclear program in a way that would be harder to get away with, with the U.S. in the deal than out of the deal. So I think Unfortunately, this only be- this scenario only benefits Iran um, uh, and not the goal of uh, keeping Iran from being closer to a nuclear weapon. So that would be the most important consequence. John uh, emails in to ask, what is the logical argument for Trump certifying the deal? We've, we've certainly covered many aspects of that, but I wonder if one of you could summarize what the logical argument is for what he's done. For decertifying? Yeah, there's there, there's no logical argument that I see. Yeah, it's, it's just I think for political fear in the United States largely, uh, it's because uh, U.S. allies in the Middle East have been pressing uh, Washington on this issue, including Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Arab Emirates because of their rivalry in the Middle East. Iran is doing a lot of things those countries don't like and see as threatening. So it's a combination of uh, domestic politics and pressure from U.S. allies in the Middle East as well. The second was related, which is, has any expert, he doesn't define expert, but has any expert gone, uh, gone in, on record in support of Trump's position? Yeah, I think they have, and there's been a number. Mm-hmm. The overall consensus among nuclear experts, national security leaders and opinion makers, if you will, is that there's no logical argument. The only ones advocating of or supporting the agreement, there are a number of, of U.S. experts. I don't 
uh, recall seeing many or any uh, global experts or certainly non-proliferation experts supporting this decision. Logical is, you know, hard to say. I think, you know, you could make a logical case and what people are making who do support this is there is a hope of a better agreement or there are some folks on that side who are arguing uh, ultimately that uh, we should be going for regime change and that there's no way we can ensure a good deal with Iran because you can't trust the Iranians. And so, you know, that's a, that's a fair perspective to have. You can argue with that. I think, the, you know, the, the concern with this decertification approach is, you know, again, it gets to the worst of all worlds. You're undermining international agreement. It's not clear you're going to get a better agreement. And unfortunately, as Ali said, it may be backfiring and counterproductive in terms of strengthening more moderate forces in the country, uh, or at least pragmatic forces. They're not entirely moderate. And, um, and unfortunately, giving more support to hardliners. So if your strategy is to stop a nuclear-armed Iran and hopefully set the stage for a more moderate, leadership in the future, unfortunately, this agreement um, is uh, this way of doing it does not seem to be terribly effective. So it, it is hard to find. And as I was saying, there are there's an argument to be made that all of the concerns this administration has, and frankly, the previous one did as well, are fair concerns. Our allies have these concerns about Iran's support for terrorist organizations, about Iran's missile development. They are very legitimate concerns. The problem with the way this is being done is you can do, you can address all of those issues more effectively by maintaining the steel. And as I said, there, there are prominent Israelis, former Defense Minister Ehud Barak in Israel, who are no fans of Iran and were, were critical of the original deal, strongly opposed to this decertification decision because of the, 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 the view and an assessment that this unfortunately will provide more benefits to Iran and further isolate the U.S. and not not lead to better agreements that contain Iran down the road. Uh, I've got a couple of follow-up questions. Ali, you mentioned aspects of the Iranian economy. How has the economy performed since the agreement went into effect? Uh, so for the last fiscal year in Iran, I believe the economy grew about 6%, 5 to 6%, um, almost entirely on the back of energy exports, which is not a good sign uh, because Iran has been trying to diversify its economy. But oil exports are back up to pre-G's uh, nuclear agreement. Uh, I don't know why they give it such a difficult name, JCPOA, but oil prices are pretty low, so Iran is not get, getting that much from its energy exports and hasn't been able to diversify its economy. Foreign investment has been increasing really recently. So the economy is still very much struggling in Iran. Somewhat related, you, you were mentioning how Supreme Leader Khamenei had been quite skeptical of this. Is the current dynamic uh, having any kind of negative in, impact on Rouhani's leverage? It doesn't appear that it is having a um, big negative effect because there has been rally around the flag effect. Uh, even Iran's uh, foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif has been very supportive of the Revolutionary Guards, I think, very explicitly to prove a point that if the, if the so-called moderates in Iran, those who are interested in engaging the United States and the West, if they are isolated on these issues, then they will turn to the Revolutionary Guards. I think there, there was always skepticism across the board in Iran that the nuclear agreement wouldn't last forever, that it had vulnerabilities because there's so many differences between 
uh, the Iranian government and the U.S. government out on so many issues in the Middle East, especially, but on the nuclear issue even still. So I think it just confirms many people's doubts. Uh, both critics and opponents, that this would not last a very long time. Frankly, I, I am a bit surprised. It's so rocky already. But I think you know, when we look at politics in the U.S. and across the globe, I, that really has an effect as well. Uh, I, the expectation was because Hillary Clinton had been very involved in negotiating the agreement through her advisors, that if she had become president, there would be still a lot of tension between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, but there wouldn't be an undermining of the agreement. And that, I think that is what the chief factor and uh, what, what we're seeing today. And Dahlia, regarding Israel, news out of Israel today, there was a kind of warning shot came from the intelligence minister, Israel Katz, saying that if Trump doesn't stop Iran's nuclear ambitions, Israel will. And they mentioned striking Iran. How's the Israeli dynamic appeared to you in this case? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, has been probably one of the most vocal global advocates supporting one of the callers that asked about who is supporting this. And, and Bibi Netanyahu certainly has been very open in his support for President Trump's approach. Um, but you de- do see fissures within the Israeli establishment on this. I mentioned former Defense Minister Ehud Barak, former Mossad head Ephraim Alevi, others who were much more critical of this approach to the nuclear deal that the U.S. administration is taking and more broadly in the military and security establishment in Israel, there was a genuine belief that the deal was somewhat effective. It's not perfect. Israelis don't love this agreement. But they thought actually the Iranians would abide by it. Um, And we're not that surprised that the Iranians have been abiding by it because they'll get benefits. Their concern is what happens when the limits start to phase out. And most importantly, what are we doing about all the non-nuclear areas that Iran is engaged in? And that's what, you know, other allies like the Saudis are also worried about. So the Israelis are much more focused and the most important issue for Israel is the Iranian presence in southern Syria. Uh, since the Syrian civil war, the Iranians have been very uh, critical in supporting the Assad regime and are very active on the ground in the country in doing that, as is Hezbollah, the Iranian ally uh, and major adversary of Israel. So there's a lot of concern about growing Iranian presence in the Syrian Golan that would directly threaten Israel. So that is their that is their biggest concern, and they have had no reservations whatsoever about continuous bombing campaigns on what they see as shipments coming through. They're not uh, openly acknowledging it, but it's kind of a pretty well-known uh, understanding. It's the Israelis doing these bombings, and they've been able to do it pretty freely. The Russians have kind of given them a free hand, so they're kind of containing the problem that way. So there's a tremendous amount or potential for escalation in that arena. It's not clear how sustainable this will be. And I think there's a lot of questions about if this deal falls apart and the Iranians are no longer under the restrictions that this deal did bring about. And it's not perfect, but it did uh, push Iran out at least a year from being able to get enough nuclear material to weaponize its program, which is no small feat. The Israelis will go back to the debate they had before this deal started, which was, can we live with the nuclear-armed Iran? And most Israelis are likely to say no. And then there'll be a debate about, could a military option stop this program? They had this debate in the past. They came to the conclusion that the military option would not actually solve the problem. And there were elements of, in the Israeli establishment who preferred the U.S., 
launch a military attack. But in our own country, we had that debate, and the general assessment was that the military costs of uh, solving the Iranian problem would be too uh, dangerous and ineffective. So again, we'll be back to those debates. We'll see if you know the new situation on the ground after all of these civil wars have been ongoing in Iraq and Syria will change those military calculations. But again, well, that's where we're going to be back to. We're going to be back to debates about can we live with a nuclear Iran or do we want to think about military options because the, the diplomatic solution will be undermined if this deal is unraveled. Very good. John has a follow-up question by email. He says, if the Iran deal is decertified, does this destroy any chance at a diplomatic deal with North Korea? Can any nuclear deal involving the U.S. in the future be trusted? That's a great question. Uh, Ultimately, the U.S. loses credibility if it keeps on this agreement. It's fine. I mean, the U.S. was at the forefront of forging this agreement. Uh, It was because of U.S. pressure. Uh, because of U.S. sanctions, uh, because of U.S. organized diplomacy. And so if this sort of agreement and non-proliferation agreements are held hostage to partisan politics in the United States, I can't see why any international actor, including U.S. allies in Europe, would trust the United States on future agreements with Iran or North Korea or any other uh, budding nuclear state. Uh, so I think everybody is watching U.S. Uh, behavior on this agreement very closely. And lastly, if the U.S. walks away from this agreement, there could be another nuclear crisis it has to deal with in addition to the North Korea nuclear crisis. The North Korean nuclear crisis is much more dire because uh, North Korea has dozens of nuclear weapons reportedly uh, and is developing capabilities to deliver them to the United States. Iran's program has been set back. So the question is, why would the United States loosen the constraints in Iran while it is dealing with North Korea? Any follow-up for you, Dalia? I would just, I mostly agree, but I would just slightly disagree in that I, I do worry about U.S. being isolated and our credibility for broader U.S. Middle East policy and beyond. But I will say, and I'm not a North Korea expert, but I do think that the North Korea uh, issue would be difficult to solve diplomatically, whether and were the Iranian agreement or not. So I'm not sure we should take it that far that, you know, if we walk away from the agreement, that's why we don't get a diplomatic solution with North Korea. I think there are so many other barriers to getting a diplomatic solution there that I'm not sure we should blame the dismantlement of the Iranian deal for everything. But I think, you know, we should be a little careful. You know, I generally believe that I am, and I'm concerned as Ali is about that broader issue, but there's a lot of extrapolation from North Korea to Iran, and they are very, very different situations, as Ali outlined, when is an actual nuclear weapon state, one is not. You know, you actually have Iran committed to the NPT. North Korea never was a party to the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. So there are a lot of distinctions, so we should be careful about that. But in the broader notion of is the U.S. a partner you can engage with and trust, I think is a fair one. It is a fair question. We are near the end of our time, so I want to thank Dahlia and Ali for their time and insights also like to thank our Policy Circle and RAND Next members and friends for joining us on this call. If you'd like more information on upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, all you have to do is tune in to RAND.org or contact us directly at policy underscore circle at RAND.org. 
This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.